0: Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here and welcome to the 318th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Healthy food is something that everybody wants. Delicious and nutritious and right outside your own door is even better. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or visit iwanttogarden.com and you'll receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own healthy food. Today on our podcast, we have someone who really wants to help you bring more bugs to your urban farm. We're talking with Jessica Walliser about attracting beneficial bugs. Jessica earned her degree in horticulture from Penn State University and co-hosts the Organic Gardeners, an award-winning program on KDKA Radio in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She also serves on the editorial advisory board of the American Horticulture Society. She is a contributor to Fine Gardening, Urban Farm, and Hobby Farms magazines, and her two weekly gardening columns for Pittsburgh Tribune Review have been enjoyed by readers for over 10 years. Congratulations on that, by the way. Jessica also blogs weekly for both SavvyGardening.com and HobbyFarms.com. She is also the author of several gardening books, including the Amazon bestseller Good Bug, Bad Bug, Who's Who?, What They Do and How to Manage Them Organically, that's from St. Lynn's Press, and Attracting Beneficial Bugs to the Garden, A Natural Approach by Timber Press, which was awarded the American Horticulture Society's 2014 Book Award. Once again, congratulations and welcome to the show today, Jessica. Are you ready to get buggy?
1: I am always ready to get buggy. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you today, Greg. I am really excited to talk bugs with you.
0: Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, we should probably... Start with that degree in horticulture that I have. Mm -hmm. When I went to pursue a degree in horticulture, you know, I had this vision of me working in the local greenhouse where I had worked all through high school during summers and all through college in the summertime. And I thought, you know, I'd graduate with a degree in horticulture, move back into my parents' house and start working again at that greenhouse. But I did what so many young people do and I went and fell in love. Oh. Right and I grew up outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is on one side of the state, and I happened to fall in love with a boy who lived in Pittsburgh, which is clear on the other side of the state, about mm. a 7-hour drive between uh, oh between gosh. the two. Right, which was forever to my parents, of uh-huh. course, 7 yes. hours was forever. And when I moved to Pittsburgh, I got a really great job with a public horticulture and gardening education facility that was is located in one of Pittsburgh's parks. And I loved the job And it was great, and I helped maintain the gardens, I helped teach some classes and things there. Ended up staying in Pittsburgh and running a landscape company, and we took care of about 40 gardens in and around the city of Pittsburgh for about 10 years how that all brings me to bugs is when I graduated with that degree in horticulture and started my own landscape company, I became a certified pesticide applicator. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, my extent of knowledge about insects was what to nuke them with to get rid of them when I graduated with that degree. And they were public enemy number one. You have to think of all about the plants and nothing about the ecosystem that revolved around them back then. I mean, that was a long time ago. So thankfully things have changed. Short story is that a and started working for me, who was super into organics. And she started bringing research to work every day, showing me about why I shouldn't be using these products that I am. How can I protect myself? I worked with a guy on a crew whose wife was having all kinds of health issues that were attributed to chemical exposure through her job. And he had a heart to heart with me about that. And it really got my wheels turning. And I decided that one year, about eight years into my business, I decided, you know what? I'm going to convert all these gardens to organic. I'm going to learn everything I can about it.
0: Nice.
1: I am a giant science nerd, Greg. I mean, you're going to see that here during our conversation. Uh huh. And I just gobbled up all the research that I could find about how to grow organically. And I made a complete switch for all of the gardens I took care of, my own garden. And over the 15 years that followed that, it became a focus on viewing insects as part of an ecosystem of the gardens, as a way to help us be better gardens, have better gardens and be better gardeners, instead of seeing them as a detriment to our gardens. And it was a huge, long process with lots more details that I'm sure that you're you're not interested in, mm-hmm. but it was a great step-by-step for me to get to where I am today, which is on my website right at the top. it claims I am a devoted bug lover, and I truly am. I am just absolutely fascinated by them.
0: Wow, this kind of goes to our pre-conversation that we had about competition versus collaboration, and I'm a big, big believer in working with our communities, working with the people that are doing this kind of work, and you're collaborating with the bugs as well, it sounds like. 100%.
1: And in many cases, I'm not so much collaborating with them as I am letting them do what they've evolved to do in Mm -hmm. the landscape and in natural areas. That's the thing. They've evolved to play a certain role. And when we humans step in and we try to make some impact on them, we throw that whole ecosystem off balance. And that's something we can talk about more a little bit later because it's a really important concept for gardeners to understand when it comes to insect. And it's a complete change of mindset. From what we've been taught and we've been told for generations, we've always learned that insects are the enemy. And now so much research is bringing to light such amazing connections between the insect world and the plant world. And we have got to start paying attention.
0: Yeah. Let's actually dive into that a little bit. Can you tell us what happens when our ecosystems get off balance
1: the easiest way to talk about this is by a specific example. And the example that I always like to use when I go out and give my talks and lectures about how to attract beneficial bugs to your garden is that the quintessential thing that all gardeners need to understand is something we all, you know, everybody over 40 probably remembers a film, what a film strip is. Oh, yeah. And so you used to watch them in seventh grade science class, yep. probably way back then in a film strip, you learned about something called the predator and prey cycle which is, as you know, you know, a predator is one animal or one creature that captures and eats another animal, which is called the prey, right? Whether it's the lion and the gazelle on the African savanna or a bass eating a minnow in a stream here in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. it's a predator and prey cycle. And that is a cycle that, we gardeners forget about. It's one that exists in our gardens and it is going on every day, 24-7, right outside of your own back door. But we get panicked about bugs and we put ourselves in that predator and prey cycle where we do not belong. And so- I often use the example of uh, the one of the ones most gardeners are familiar with, which is aphids and the ladybugs that eat them, oh, right? Yeah. The a- aphid lands on a plant. It starts sucking plant juices, starts making babies, right? Because female aphids can give birth to live clones of themselves. They don't even need a man to have babies, which oh, wow. is crazy, crazy cool, right? Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So she starts popping out live clones of herself. And the next thing you know, we have this huge explosion of aphids. And the population of predators like the ladybugs that eat the aphids always lags behind yep. the population of the aphids. Right. And so what do we do? We panic when we see those aphids. We squish them with our hands. We spray them with the hose. We spray horticultural oil on them, or God forbid, we use orthine or some other nasty chemical. We are putting ourselves in the predator and prey cycle where we don't belong. And we get rid of that prey right before those natural enemies and those predators were about to show up to help us control them naturally. So it's about giving nature time to do what she has evolved to do, about letting that predator and prey cycle have a place and understanding that it is a natural part of the ecosystem. And we have to let it go. We have to give up some of that control and let these good bugs do their thing. The more you do that, the more good bugs you have in your garden in the more pest control you have. And I haven't sprayed anything in my own garden. We've lived here now for 14 years and I've never sprayed anything. No horticulture oil, no squishing things with my fingers, Mm -hmm. no hand picking, nothing. Because I have a great population of good bugs because I've let that predator and prey cycle have its place.
0: Wow. Mostly I do that here at the Urban Farm. (laughs) Mostly. Mostly. Well, I'll tell you about that here in a moment. I've been here for 28 years and I've been able to manage everything except the caterpillars. We have the skeletonizer caterpillars that show up on our grapes and we have the loopers that show up on our cabbage and lettuce and cauliflower and that kind of stuff. What suggestions do you have for the caterpillars?
1: Okay, well, here's the deal. This is one thing we really have to think about with these insects. If there is no predator and prey cycle in existence for them, Mm -hmm. then we have to step in. And let's talk about when that would happen. The biggest example is if it's like an exotic pest that was recently introduced. Mm -hmm. To our shores, right? It has not even co-evolved here with other insects that recognize it as prey So here in the east we could talk about something like the emerald ash borer, which is wreaking havoc on our ash trees It's an asian insect. It has no natural predators here We could talk about the japanese beetles when they first got here for many years. No other insect or bird or rodent or whatever, recognized them as a food source. So there was no predator and prey cycle and their population exploded. The grape leaf skeletonizer, I believe, is a native insect. So Uh that's not the case. There is a predator and prey cycle here for it. But there's other things that also influence that predator and prey cycle as well. There are tons of parasitic wasps out there that love to consume or actually love to lay their eggs in many different species of caterpillars. But those beneficial parasitic wasps need to drink nectar from certain types of flowers. If you don't have enough of those types of flowers around, you don't have enough of those predators around to help you manage that caterpillar. It's all super connected. So one of the things that I do in attracting beneficial bugs to your garden is in the back of the book, I actually have a chart that talks about who the particular beneficial insect is what pests they consume in the garden, and then what you can and should plant in your landscape to promote that particular insect. So for example, in your grape area, if you have just grass between your rows of grapes, you're missing a gigantic opportunity to boost the numbers of natural parasitic wasps. So that would be a perfect place to plant ground cover of crimson clover, or any member of the carrot family, from dill to angelica to zizia to parsley and cilantro, and allow them to go to flower. Those are the types of flowers that parasitic wasps need to nectar on because they're really shallow. They've got exposed nectaries. So your companion planting to lure in a specific beneficial insect that can help you manage that particular pest. There's a great amount of research. Great. I mean, it's huge. And I got to talk and interview a lot of entomologists all across North America about Uh their particular research. And it is just jaw-dropping stuff. And we gardeners can take advantage of that.
0: Wow that so as you were sharing that I literally I'm over here getting chills it's like wow that's amazing because what you've just put in place is a companion planting for beneficial insects that drive the predator prey process in your own yard
1: Absolutely, 100%. And the last half of the book is actually about what specific plants have been researched and have been noted as being really good at Uh supporting particular beneficial insects. I mean, and there's more and more research coming out about that. This book is now a few years old, Mm -hmm. and I could go in right now and do another revision that included lots of different new research that's come on the market. And to go back to that grape leaf skeletonizer, Uh there's another factor at here, and that is that an alternate host plant for them is the virginia creeper and so when virginia creeper and other host plants that they use are not available what are they going to turn to they're going to turn to our cultivated plants oh, that are yes. planted in big long rows it's like a giant flag out for them hey here's food for you right because we plant things in big long rows mm-hmm. when we interplant them it with other things and other crops it's a lot harder for pest insects to hone in on that particular host plant. So maybe plant a couple of native Virginia creeper on, the, on mm-hmm. the margins of that field. Yes, it can potentially increase the numbers of pests because it's providing them another food source. But if you put it far enough away, you can maybe use it as a trap crop. So it's about experimenting, reading what's already out there and finding ways to make this system work for you.
0: Wow, I'm just blown away. This is brilliant what you've done here. I want to confirm something. This is the book you've mentioned twice now. It's the book, Attracting Beneficial Bugs to the Garden?
1: Yes. Yep.
0: Perfect. So what makes a beneficial insect? I often will get emails with photographs from my listeners and they'll say, oh my gosh, there's this bug growing in the backyard. How do I kill it? That's always the first place they go. My first thing for these interactions is, hold on, we got to identify it, find out what it is. So what makes a good beneficial bug?
1: Yeah, and that actually, Greg, drives me bonkers when people do that. You know, Mm -hmm. they'll post a picture of a spider or of some random insect, and the first thing everybody comments is squish it, squish it, squish Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. The truth is that there are just under a million insects identified in the world today. Wow. Well, scientists estimate there's between 2 and 20 million different insect species. So at best, we haven't even managed to identify half of them. If there's 20 million species, boy, we we barely have the tip of the iceberg identified. But what we do know is that of that million or so that we have identified, uh-huh. less than 1% are classified as known agricultural or human pests. So less than 1%. It is a very, very small percentage of insects that you find outside wow. your back door that are harmful to pet, to humans in some way. Uh-huh. Whether it's eating our crops or biting us or you know stinging us or whatever. It's a very small percentage. But yet the bad guys, quote unquote, always seem to get all the press, right? They seem to get all mm-hmm. the attention and it, yeah. it's crazy that they do. So what makes a bug beneficial? And that, that was your question, right? So for in gardener's terms, we can look at it as two different categories. The first category would be the pollinators. Obviously, we need bees and butterflies and beetles and flies to pollinate our crops. They're absolutely essential. They've been in the news a lot lately Mm -hmm. because of population declines in so many of those species. The other group of beneficials would be the predators and the parasitoids. And We talked about what a predator is, which is one animal that catches and eats another. But a parasitoid is one animal, in this case we're talking about insects, that use another insect as a host for their developing young, primarily as a host for their developing young. Sometimes it's a host for themselves, but it's mostly a host for their developing young. And eventually, with a parasitoid, that host will die. A parasite, the host doesn't die. A parasitoid, the host dies. Uh... So when we were talking about the caterpillars that have all those parasitic wasps, Mm -hmm. they use them... They lay their eggs either on or under the skin of that caterpillar, and then that caterpillar serves as food for the developing larval wasps. So there are literally tens of thousands of these relationships and these insects. Tachinid flies are another great, huge group of parasitoids. They look like regular old houseflies out in the garden. But if you ever see what looks like a housefly on a flower... Uh Uh-huh. It's not a housefly. It's a tachinid fly. In a tachinid fly, the females lay their eggs on other insects and that egg hatches and burrows into the insect and consumes and eventually kills that insect. So it's a huge group, thousands and thousands of different species of tachinid flies in North America. Wow. Yeah. So predators and parasitoids are that other group of beneficial insects.
0: Cool. And you know, I guess we can add those to our gardens as well, just like you can buy ladybugs
1: yeah, you can. and it's an interesting topic for you to bring up. It's not really something that I recommend for outdoor places because mm-hmm. there's been been a lot of research that shows you know insects can't be contained. if If you're in a greenhouse and yep. you're releasing them in a controlled setting, it's a different story. But when you're releasing them outdoors in the garden, there's no guarantee that they're going to stick around. They have to have a certain level of resources available to them and a certain balance of resources in that particular site as well. Mm -hmm. If there's not enough nectar for the adults, if there's not enough host insects for them to lay their eggs, if the humidity isn't right, if there's not enough moisture, you know, all these factors come into play that would ensure success with those releases and with biocontrol. But it's not easy to make sure that all of those factors are coupled together in the right way. But actually, it's much more valuable and important for you to nurture the beneficial insects that already exist in your garden rather than importing new ones and sort of taking that risk as to whether or not they're going to work. Uh So instead, you have to do like certain things and create an environment where the ones that are already living there are going to really flourish and thrive and make this welcome environment for them.
0: So really what you're doing is you're making a garden for your bugs So that they show up and take care of your plants.
1: Exactly. It's habitat creation. Mm -hmm. It's a good bug garden. You know, technically it could be called an insectary garden. Mm -hmm. There's lots of things that you can do to make that happen. It's not just about planting the right plants, although that's certainly a part of it, but there are other factors involved as well.
0: Nice. Like what?
1: Well, I would say probably the biggest number one thing that gardeners can do is quit cleaning up the garden at the end of the season. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not talking about a plant that was, you know, really pest infested. If you had a plant that had a ton of pest damage to it, and there's a possibility of those pests overwintering on that plant, then you have to cut that plant down at the end of the growing season and get rid of it Mm -hmm. because obviously it's harboring a pest. But if it was a healthy, disease-free, pest-free plant, especially if it was an insectary plant, That's one that you should leave standing all winter because these insects need a place to hibernate or enter a state of diapause, which is their insect world's version of hibernation. And so they need a place to hunker down for the winter. And when we cut everything down, we rake up all the leaves, we clean everything up and make this pristine environment, we've taken away all of their sheltering spots and we're starting back at ground zero in the spring. When instead what we want to do is delay our cleanup in the spring until the temperatures are regularly in the 50s by then the insects the days are longer the insects have sort of woken up and they're starting to go about their business and you are not harming them and right out the gate you're starting with a good population of beneficial insects instead of starting at ground zero
0: perfect you know one of the things that i often do here at the urban farm is i let things go to seed and a lot of the things that i let go to seed are biennials which means it takes you know 18 months so the plants actually live through what could be two winters. So that's helping things. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting. You, you are the kind of gardener that likes things to go to seed, but there's certainly gardeners that, are worried that if they leave their plants stand through the winter, that they're going to go to seed and become, you know, potentially weedy. And if that's the case, if you know one of your listeners is that person, all they need to do is cut the spent flowers off at the end of the season. You know, if you love you love goldenrod, which is a great plant for beneficial insects, but you don't want it to go to seed, mm-hmm. just cut the cut the flower stalks off after they're done blooming. It's oh. it's really that simple. You know, so it just it's a, smart. It's being smart in the garden, yeah. making choices that benefits somebody other than you, right? Right. Start start gardening for somebody other than you.
0: (laughs) And that's going to, in the long run, benefit us.
1: 100%. It is gardening for you. You just don't know it yet.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So that's one way to encourage insects to make their home in our landscape. Is there others?
1: I would say number one is eliminate the use of pesticides. And this is why this is such a big deal. You know, people are all, well, I only use horticultural oil or insecticidal soap or some other, you know, OMRI organic certified product, right? Mm -hmm. Because on the label, it says safe for use around beneficials, but it's kind of a lot like, you know medicines are for grown ups you know they're tested on grown ups they're not tested on kids, so too with many of these pesticides, even the organic ones they're not necessarily tested on let's say the larval stage of ladybugs, which are soft bodied, just like those aphids are that you're spraying that insecticidal soap or horticultural oil on. It's really about if possible and whenever possible, completely eliminating pesticides and giving the garden time to get back into balance. And I know that it's different when you're talking about it being economic issue, right? Because right. you're a farmer, you're growing, it's not just for pretty, right? Like the average home gardener, and we're talking about using pesticides on ornamental crops, That yep. I mean, that's totally ridiculous to me. I mean, it's so rare that an ornamental plant is outright killed by a pest insect. Mm-hmm. And if it is, it's usually some exotic insect that has recently gotten here and, and doesn't have any predators. But in the vegetable garden, it's a little different. Certainly on a farm, it's different because it cuts into your bottom line, but there are still ways that you can greatly reduce, if not 100% eliminate your use of conventional and organic pesticides by getting that balance of good bugs and a healthy population of them in your garden and let them do that work for you. And it's not going to happen overnight. Sometimes it takes two or three years to get that balance in place. But once it is, the possibility of pest outbreaks are so greatly reduced.
0: Yeah. We just have to be patient with our gardens.
1: We really do. And you have to understand and learn what to look for, you know, do you know what a parasitized aphid looks like? They're called aphid mummies. And if you don't know what it looks like, mm-hmm. how do you even know if that particular species of parasitic wasp is around in your garden and working for you? If you don't know what to look for. So, it's educating yourself on what these insects look for, how they work in the landscape so that you can see them in action and that makes it a little more personal to people as well. Right. We become more accepting of it when we can actually see it happening in front of our eyes.
0: So one of the things that you might do is go to Google and look up aphid mummy?
1: Sir, sure, absolutely, one hundred percent. In fact, if you even type my name, Jessica Walliser. Aphid mummy or aphid parasitization.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All good.
1: You know, if you go in there and you type in Jessica Wallace or aphid parasite or Jessica Wallace or parasitic wasp, you'll come up with everything I've ever written on that subject, and there'll probably be some great pictures in there as well. Obviously, it's something that there's a lot of in my book as well. Images uh-huh. help you identify. How each different insect works, what they look like at different stages in their life, what does a ladybug egg look like, right? It's important that you know all of, as much of that as possible so that you're arming yourself with information to make smart choices
0: in the garden. Yeah, well, because ladybug larvae, they kind of look prehistoric and bad don't they?
1: Yeah, they're super intimidating. They look like little miniature alligators, Uh right? Yep. So too with lacewing larvae, I mean, especially the brown lacewings, their larvae are kind of crazy looking. And the green lacewing larvae, there are a lot of species that actually cover themselves in their own poop. And like, plant debris and all that stuff to mask themselves from the predators that like to eat them, right? Because mm-hmm. there's predators that eat the predators. And so if you see that crawling around on your plant, you might be like, wow, what do I do to get rid of it? Right. But in reality, it's helping you control some nasty pest. Yeah. So you got to be flexible and you got to be willing to learn and do a little bit of research.
0: Yeah. We, we actually have a young lady, her name is Erin, that works here at the urban farm with me the, the urban farm. For those of you that don't know it is a third of an acre. It's right in the middle of Phoenix. And I farm my front and backyard. I really garden my farm, my front and backyard with edibles as our hobby. And Aaron comes in and helps, you know, a few hours a week just to help me stay on top of it. And she came to me the other day and she said, Greg, I really have to apologize. I said, what's up? And she said, I smashed a few of these bugs, but then I thought, wow, maybe I should look them up online. So she got her phone out and looked them up right there and they were the ladybug larva.
1: Yeah. There's someone who already has a background in gardening that was doing it. So yeah.
0: Right. So we really have to pay attention and make sure you identify what the bug is before you even think about smashing it. And then, you know, according to Jessica, we don't want to smash them.
1: Exactly. Right. Because if you smash all the prey, you're not going to have any predators around. Mm Right. Right. And the predatory insects are not like us. They don't eat the whole buffet just because it's out in front of them, right? They want to leave some of the prey insects behind so that their progeny have somebody to eat, right? So they want that cycle of life to continue. You know, they're not going to bring 100% control to every pest in the garden. So it's also about learning tolerance. It's learning that a perfectly blemish-free, whole-free cabbage is not the goal. The goal is a healthy ecosystem garden that has natural cabbages that are as whole free as possible, but might have one or two blemishes. Mm -hmm. But isn't it better to eat something like that, that you know is safe to consume? For me, it certainly is. For my family, it certainly is. I don't know how you could do it otherwise. For me, this is just the way everybody should be.
0: <laughs> exactly so what are some of the more interesting beneficial bugs that we might find in our garden
1: well i think the one that surprises a lot of people and that they aren't aware of is fireflies i don't think in arizona you guys have any species we that don't. glow as adults right but all across north america there are many different species of fireflies that don't glow as adults but all firefly larvae glow no matter what the species is and no matter where in North America they are. So you might think you don't have fireflies, but there's a very good chance that you do. They just don't light up the skies at night. Right. So, What's cool about their larva, and if you, again, Google firefly larva, Jessica Walser, you'll come up with a picture that I've taken, I'm sure. They're like armored, prehistoric dinosaur-looking creatures. They are super cool. And they live down in boggy, marshy, low-lying areas, forest detritus and leaf litter, and in swampy sites in our yards. And they are super good at eating slugs and snails. So for somebody who lives like in the Pacific Northwest or here in Pennsylvania in a wet year, we have big issues with slugs and snails. Firefly larvae are great predators of those insects. So that's one that surprises an awful lot of people. Uh They aren't predators as adults, but certainly as larvae.
0: I just did what you asked. You Googled it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, they're cool looking bugs and they are also a little prehistoric looking.
1: Definitely prehistoric looking. Yeah, they've got those sort of armored plates that yeah. Collect over each other. Yeah. Yeah. Another big one that we hear gardeners talking about all the time, but I don't think they understand the full extent of how good these guys are for the garden. And that would be the spiders. And of course they're not bugs, they're arachnids, but mm-hmm. you know, we consider them beneficial bugs. Right. People will say, okay, well, you know, leave the spiders go in the garden because they're good for the garden. And they'll be looking at the web but the, the spider has spun and they'll say, Well, geez, how many bugs is it really going to catch on that web? It's not really going to catch my Mexican bean beetles or my Colorado potato beetles because they're not going to fly into that web that's way over on the other side of the yard, right? It's actually not the web spinning spiders that are the best pest control in our landscapes. It's actually what are called the cursorial or hunting spiders. These are the spiders that don't spin a web. They go out at night And they literally stalk our gardens and our people for prey. They are hunting. They're hunters. They do have the ability to spin webs, but mostly they'll do that, you know, for egg laying, you know, to cover their egg cases or something like that. They don't do it to catch their prey. They go out and hunt for their prey. These guys are incredible predators of everything from asparagus beetle larva, Colorado potato bean larva, Mexican bean beetle larva. They love to come out onto my cabbage plants at night and eat the imported green cabbage worms. You go out at night with a flashlight and you sit there long enough, you can see them stalking and crawling around on your plants looking for pests. Mm-hmm. You know, We don't see them during the day, so we think they're not doing a job for us, but they're definitely out there working every night, all night long, if you let them be and let them do their thing they're there and they're a huge one and people are so afraid of them and it's it's ridiculous because they do do so much
0: good in the landscape oh yeah well and you know to some people spiders are scary but to the bad bugs the spiders are even scarier
1: (laughs) it's exactly true that's exactly right yeah and i would say probably one more for like one that i think is one of the coolest ones out there that does such a great job for us is so tiny that they actually named it the minute pirate bug. And I'm talking super minute, like a sixteenth of an inch. They're really super tiny. And they've got, like a lot of other beneficial insects, they've got this mouth part that's like a needle. It's called a rostrum. And when they catch their prey, they stick it with this needle-like mouth part, Mm -hmm. and they inject it with a toxic saliva, and it liquefies the insides of that insect, and then they slurp it back up.
0: Oh, wow. Like
1: a protein shake, right? And they just leave leave the exoskeleton behind. So they're great for like if you have roses and you've got thrips on your roses, you definitely want to encourage minute pirate bugs. They do a lot of scales. They do a lot of insect larvae, spider mites, corn earworms, white flies, and they're so tiny. You would never even know that they're out in your garden because they're itty bitty little things, mm-hmm. but they do an amazing job of controlling pests.
0: Yeah. Well, and they too are a little bit prehistoric looking. I just looked one up online.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. They've got that sort of diamond shape of silver at the back end of their bodies because mm-hmm. their wing their wing covers don't come all the way to the end of their bodies like so many other insects. So right. that diamond shape of silver on the back is a really good indicator of a minute pirate bug, but you got to look awfully close for them.
0: Wow. How cool. So really my big takeaway from our conversation is go out and observe, pay attention to what's going on in your space, and then nurture your gardens for beneficial bugs.
1: 100%. Couldn't have said it any better myself.
0: (laughs) Well, you did say it. I just recreated it from our conversation. (laughs) So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it.
1: Oh boy. Well, I fail a lot, (laughs) especially in the garden because, Uh you know, being a garden communicator and writer as I am, you know, it's funny because everybody always says, Oh, you must have the most beautiful garden. But the truth is I don't always have as much time as I would like uh, to spend out in the garden. So as a result, things fail and guess what? That's okay. Life rolls on and it's all good. But I would say probably like career wise, Mm -hmm. the biggest failure for me was as a kid's teacher. You would think that, you know, my passion for plants, my passion for insects would, would mean that I would be a really, people say all the time, you'd be great teaching a kid's class. Well, I did that and it didn't go so well. (laughs) different audience. I teach a lot of adults. Teaching kids is a different beast. Now, it granted, that was, that was a long time ago. And when I knew I was no good at it, I stepped away. So maybe if I go back again, I could connect with kids a little bit better now that I am a mom myself. But yeah, it was it was a pretty big epic fail when they, you know, are practically piling on top of you in the garden because you can't control them. So, right. yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you know, and I what I usually do with kids in the garden is they start picking things And feeding it to them, you know, it's like,
1: yeah, if they like veggies, that's definitely the thing to do. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that grows wild here at the urban farm is oxalis or lemongrass. Uh It's It's a clover looking thing and it's lemony tasting. So that's always a good one. It's like, Ooh, eat the clover. And, you know, and then their face lights up when they, you know, when they get the lemony part.
1: Yeah. You have to have a gateway. And I guess that Oxalis is your gateway. I haven't found my gateway yet. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Do you have any learning from that?
1: Oh, lots of learning. I mean, lots of learning and developing from it. And actually I think that it made me a better teacher for grownups. It made me a better adult teacher because I thought, you know, the idea of taking science and making it, let's say less sciency, right. More accessible to the average Joe translating it into something that they can relate to. I mean, that's really what it's all about. So I get to interview all these entomologists doing this amazing research, and then I get to take that research and I get to put it in terms that the average home gardener can understand and that they can see how that's going to affect their landscape. So that was the biggest lesson learned from all of that was really how to take hard stuff and make it easy and fun to understand.
0: Yeah. And that is so incredibly important to make the science of what we're doing into a way that people can understand it and actually go be proactive and actionable with it.
1: 100% and and connect it to their personal life. That's the other thing. When science is something that's over there, right? And somebody else is working on it and they're seeing it and they got a lab coat on and they're, you know, studying things and marking down data. When it's over there, Mm -hmm. we don't feel the same passion for it as when it's something that's happening to us and for us and with us. And I think that's a thing that we have to work on collectively. And we used the term earlier, of the community, right? The community of gardeners that uses that science as, as a way to garden and the reasons for our gardening and doing different things that we do. We have to be able to introduce that to our neighbors, to our friends, to our children, to our kids' classmates at school. And get them to be enthusiastic about it and get them to make that connection with their life as well so they go on and on and on and pass it down the line to you know their friends and neighbors etc yeah. etc cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yep
0: perfect so what do you consider your biggest success
1: well other than my son <laughs> who's 12 years old and he's pretty darn great wow um, I cool Success. you know we got a long way to go you know till he's till he's a full grown adult but he's a pretty great kid but in the garden i would say my greatest success is actually my own insectary garden When I started researching for attracting beneficial bugs to your garden and I started looking into all of these plants, I realized that my own landscape was sort of a hodgepodge collection of things people had given to me, of things that caught my eye in a catalog of things I thought, oh, that's going to look really great next to whatever other plant I had. Mm -hmm. And what I really needed to do was take a good hard look at my own garden and say, what's missing? What from this collection of plants that I now know is the best? at supporting good bugs, what can I take and make it home in my landscape? What am I missing? And I worked really hard to do that. We've, have a mission to get a lot more plantings put in the back of our house. Insectary plantings, uh, as many more natives we need to include. I'm not a native exclusive gardener. Mm -hmm. I do have some introduced plants that I love. I I can't garden without peonies for Pete's sake. So what I do to make up for that is for every non-native I have, I make sure that I have three to five natives so that I'm including as many natives as as I can in the landscape in addition to those non-natives. So I would say I love that and I love it as a six and here's the reason why, because I can go out on any day of the year and I can shoot a Facebook live video of some beneficial insect or another in my garden that I see within five minutes of walking out the door wow. and I can show people what it's all about and they can see it for themselves. And I can say, Hey, next time you go out into your garden and you see aphids all over your milkweed, I want you to look for this too, because there's a good chance it's happening in your garden as well. Yeah. And I love that. I love that I can walk out and within just a few minutes find something really cool to share.
0: Wow. So... You do Facebook Lives then. Tell us about that.
1: I do. They're super fun. I just really got into them this year. And I was so proud of myself for A, figuring it out, and and B, getting so many views and so many shares on them. I mean, who who would have thought? I did a little video of on the back of a sunflower leaf. There's something called an extra floral nectary. So there's a gland on the bottom of every sunflower leaf that produces nectar from that gland. Yep. And then that is to attract certain insects to that. And a lot of times I'll find leaf hoppers on the back of the leaves of my sunflowers feasting on that nectar. Mm -hmm. Well, I also happened to find a group of ants farming a group of leaf hoppers that were feeding on the extra floral nectary. And so I did a little Facebook video of this and it was like 10,000 views and like, I don't know, hundreds of shares. I mean, it was crazy. And I'm like, I see this every day in my garden, but I guess most people don't care to flip over a sunflower leaf and see what's going on on the other side. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and they're fun to do because it's like little light bulbs go off over people's heads. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my gosh, this is happening outside in my garden too. And I really do enjoy doing them. A little hard to do this time of year because there's not much action going on out in the garden, at least not here in Pennsylvania, because the temperatures are cold and things have pretty well died back. But definitely people are visual learners and it's a great way to get to them.
0: And where do we find that at? Obviously on Facebook, where's your Facebook page?
1: Yeah, definitely. So people can just follow me. It's just Jessica Walliser. Uh, It's W-A-L-L-I-S-E-R. I I also occasionally do them for a company that I own with three other gardeners, two in Canada and one in Minnesota. And that's Savvy Gardening, S-A-V-V-Y Gardening. So I do some Facebook Live videos and certainly lots of posting and writing for Savvy Gardening as well. So that's just another place to follow along.
0: Perfect. So what drives you? Bugs. (laughs)
1: Bugs. <laughs> no, and not, not just bugs. I would say, oh my gosh, what drives me? I think the opportunity to teach people something that they had absolutely no idea about. Mm-hmm. And maybe we call, I uh, maybe I have a thing for shock and awe. <laughs> I uh-huh. don't know. But I really love when people go, no way. When they just, I show them something and they just, they can't believe it. They can't believe it. It's something that's totally new to them because in this day and age with the internet and the accessibility of information, and you take a person that has been gardening for 70 years of their life, right? Or 50 years of their life, forever, right? And you show them something that they didn't know was happening right yes. under there. I, mean, I get a great deal of satisfaction out of that in doing it in a way that's friendly and warm and accessible because I can't wait for them to have their next garden club meeting and tell people to
0: <laughs> right, or
1: sow people. I mean, that definitely drives me. It is really important to me to have enthusiasm and to share that enthusiasm and hope that it spreads on down the line.
0: If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: One of my most favorite books and probably most referenced books, because while I am all about beneficial predatory insects and parasitoids, I also love our native pollinators. And so there's a book out by the Xerces Society. The Xerces Society is an organization to promote invertebrates, and it's called Attracting Native Pollinators, Mm -hmm. Protecting North America's Bees and Butterflies, and it is a great guide to Basically, the other group of beneficial insects from my book. So mine's the predators and parasitoids. Theirs is about the pollinators, yeah. and in particular, the native pollinators. And their diversity and visual beauty and the ecosystem's roles that they play are just mind-blowing. And I, I reference the book all the time. I mean, it's dog-eared all over the place.
0: <laughs> Beautiful. And we actually interviewed them about that book in the podcast. I can't remember the episode number it was, but I will definitely have that in the show notes page for today.
1: Yeah. Was it Mace Vaughn who you interviewed by chance? He's one of the entomologists that work with
0: work there. Probably it's been a while, but yes,
1: he's great. I interviewed him for the book and he's, he's absolutely amazing. It's so cool. These people are so smart and it's so thrilling to get to talk to them about the research and what they're doing.
0: And I love it when they and you show up and want to share so fully about all this. So yay.
1: Yay, right? Yay, bugs.
0: (laughs) Yay, (laughs) yay, bugs. There you go. There's your next book title. Yay, bugs.
1: Oh, right. There you go. Maybe that's how I'll reach the kids, right? Maybe that's my gateway. Yay, bugs.
0: there you go. (laughs) So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: Oh my gosh, I think I'd say chill out, right? Stop thinking everything has to be perfect all the darn time, right? Vegetables do not have to be perfect to be delicious. Our gardens do not have to be perfectly designed. They don't have to be perfectly weed-free. They don't have to have perfect edges on them all the time. I mean, chill out. Realize that your gardens are not meant for you solely. They are also meant for everything else that's actually living in them. You may not be able to chill out about how you dress or how clean your house is or how nice your car is or how good your kids look in the Christmas card picture. But one thing you can chill out about is your garden and your yard and just relax a little bit.
0: Amen to that. (laughs) Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Jessica.
1: It has been my pleasure.
0: And it has been so much fun for me and I've learned a lot. I've been gardening for 44 years. I started in the early 70s and I learned some things today. And this is... One of the big reasons I love doing what I do here on the podcast is we get to share with everybody, but I get to learn something. Well, now
1: I guess I can go to bed satisfied tonight because mission accomplished.
0: Yeah, there you go. So how can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: They can always get a hold of me via my website, which is just jessicawalliser.com, J-E-S-S-I-C-A-W-A-L-L-I-S-E-R.com. They can also always reach me at savvygardening.com, which is the business that I referenced earlier. And then, of course, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Love to connect people that way and always email, which you can contact me through the website as well.
0: You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash good bugs. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Healthy food is something that everybody wants. Delicious and nutritious and right outside your own door is even better. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or visit iwanttogarden.com and you'll receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own healthy food.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.
0: Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation.